everyone. Welcome to the second event for Sidewalks. Um, my name is Claudia Mancini. I'm a producer at the Centre for Stories. I'm so excited to have you guys all here for the second year of Sidewalks. Um, so before we get started, I would just like to take a moment to acknowledge that we are meeting here on Wajak Noongar Buja and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge our very generous sponsors, um, without whom Sidewalks would not have been possible. So thank you to the City of Perth, um, Rainer Real Estate, Aspen Corporate Financial Planning and Herbert Smith Freehills. Thank you also to King Street Collective for having us in their beautiful space. Um, you guys might like to do a little bit of Christmas shopping while you're listening to the stories. There's so many beautiful things here. Um, a lot of it made by local artists in Perth. Um, so a beautiful place to pick up some gifts. So in case of an emergency, really hope that doesn't happen. Um, this is your exit here, right under the bright green exit sign. So um, we are here for my worst critic. Um, so we have Garrett Klee and Zoe Bradfield sharing stories about that little voice or that person who just push and push and push uh, for better or for worse. So I'm going to invite Garrick up first, but then we will be followed by Zoe. So please make them all feel very welcome. Thank you. I was always a shy and introverted kid. I was the kid that never put up their hand in class. I would break out in a sweat if the teacher ever called on me. And if I ever had to get up in front of class, I would start shaking and stop breathing. In high school though, I made a gang of geeky friends. The academic structure suited me and I absolutely nailed applicable maths and calculus. I ended up doing well at high school, really well. I was the ducks of my graduating year. But in uni, everything changed. The lack of structure and needing to try and make new friends <coughs> um, was a struggle for me. I would walk past the TAV and never go in. Between classes, I would head straight for the bathroom uh, to avoid people. And at the end of the day, I would drive straight home. Eventually, I stopped going to classes altogether and started living for the most part like a Japanese hikikomori, isolated in the comfort of my room. And the more I stayed in, the more fearful I became of going out. I ended up failing a bunch of units, including maths units, which I'd always done well at. But somehow I managed to graduate and somehow I managed to find work, which was kind of a minor miracle when I think back on it. That brought back some structure in my life, but I was still struggling and isolated in so many ways. And that's where I was about 10 years ago when my dad was diagnosed with a, a brain tumour and had emergency surgery within days. The surgery went badly and left him unable to walk and talk. He was put on palliative care and expected to pass away within months. But the family rallied together and we did everything we could to try and get him better again. And incredibly, it worked. It was the most miraculous thing I've ever seen in my life. 
I've since read or heard people say that cancer was the best thing that happened to them. Facing their mortality gave them clarity. I wasn't facing my own mortality, but it was the first time that I really understood on an intuitive and emotional level just how short life is. As Confucius said, we all have two lives and our second one starts after we realize we only have one. That was the moment I realized I only had one. I had come to the belief over many, many years that I was a really shy and introverted person and that's just how it was. I'd always wanted to live this big, full life, full of adventure, but I just couldn't do it. Then one day, I stumbled upon the symptoms for social anxiety on the internet and was shocked at how perfectly it described me. Social anxiety, or social phobia, as it's also known, is more than just shyness. It's a chronic and excessive fear of negative judgment. For me and the roughly 5% of the population with social anxiety, it manifests as a vicious cycle of anxious thoughts, avoidance and safety behaviors, and the physical symptoms brought on by the fight or flight response. After my, my dad had almost died, I resolved myself to taking the steps to do something about my social anxiety and change my life, no matter how hard it seemed. And it was hard. I got into a 12-week group therapy course for social anxiety where half the class dropped out after the first week. There I learned that uh, avoidance of anxiety-provoking uh, situations is the number one enemy when it comes to social anxiety. It perpetuates and grows that anxiety and digs that hole ever deeper, making it ever harder to get out of. When my dad, when my dad had recovered well enough, we went on a family holiday to Malaysia, where my dad is from, where my parents are from. And we were sitting around in a bedroom one night when I thought it might be a good idea to interview my dad uh, using an app. One of the app's suggested questions was that I asked dad was, what is one of your greatest accomplishments in life? After a long pause, dad said, I didn't accomplish anything, frankly speaking. I'm a loser. Dad was a good man. He, he was a flawed human being and not a perfect dad by any means, but he was a good man and someone that his friends and family could always rely on. So it broke my heart to hear him say those words. At the same time, it so clearly resonated with me. My dad has since passed away but my memory of him and everything he went through is a constant reminder to keep trying and make the most 
out of this one life. Since his illness, I've plunged myself into life more and more, forcing myself to confront my anxiety in situation after situation. Times when I would say yes to everything, times when I would feel like I was going to die speaking in front of a group of people, and times when I would fall back and retreat into avoidance for long periods. It's been hard, and I still feel like a bit of a loser at times, but I have got to live a big, full life full of adventure. Like the time I trained to become an acro yoga teacher in Thailand, or the really tough months I spent working in remote areas of Liberia and Myanmar, or the super fun naked bike ride I joined in Seattle. Social anxiety is still a struggle, but when things get tough, I think of my dad, and I know it's all worth it. Thanks. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on Nungabudja with you today and to have the opportunity to share a story along with these two other fine humans. I'm going to take you to the place where this particular story begins and it's the dining room table of my parents' home and I was 15 years old. And I'd brought home the piece of paper from school where we had to select subjects for what we were going to do with hashtag the rest of our lives. Such a difficult decision to make at such a young age. And back then, the options were much fewer than they are now. And I remember being filled with uh, just bewilderment about what it would be that I could do uh, for the rest of my life. I'd had an idyllic childhood, I'd grown up overseas, and my parents returned home back to Perth for me to complete my high schooling. I'd done well in high school. Uh, and I had grown up hearing these stories of the strong women in my family. My great-great-grandmother had a shop uh, selling produce during the Great Depression. Uh, during the time of rations, my grandmother uh, single-handedly raised three daughters on a farm and ran one by herself. Uh, other grandmother, her, her uh, husband had left her with eight children in the time where there was no single mother's pension. So I'd heard all these legacy stories of really strong women. My mum and, and her sisters described themselves as strong women and that's certainly how I experienced them. And so I, I knew that I had this legacy of strength but nothing to capture my vision about how I might direct it. No one in my family had been to university uh, and so to try and conceptualise what it might be that I might do uh, was a challenge. So my mum went out to the community, she uh, did her due diligence and uh, asked the questions, what it is it that we can get Zoe to do? And uh, she returned home with this great idea and she said, I've got it. I think you can go to university and you can become a nurse. Uh, and, I, you know, in the absence of any other brilliant ideas, I said, sure. Uh, I went to university and uh, started the degree. Look, I, you know, did okay. I was a little bit disenfranchised, but, you know, I did, I turned up to lectures and, and did what I was meant to do. It was one Saturday, I remember, I was having a conversation at a barbecue with an uncle-type figure who'd said to me, now, I hear you're doing nursing at university. I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, I think you should stop this nonsense. I think you should stay home and get married and have children. 
And uh, I remember, you know, this is not that long ago, <laughs> but I remember uh, think, just being floored by his hubris and his cheek at, uh, you know, suggesting such a thing. And I'll tell you what, I was a very good student before that conversation, but something about the injustice of uh, not, of having my options limited by virtue of my gender just made me rage. And I was such a good student after that. So I went and finished the back end of my degree, high distinctions and finished, and I became a nurse. I still clearly remember my first day as a staff nurse, Royal Perth Hospital, white uniform, white stockings, white shoes, looked completely the part. And embarking on this career of nursing that, uh, that had kind of been set for me, really, it wasn't an agenda that I'd had. Uh, and I, uh, you know, like, I was an okay nurse. I uh, was kind, I was good, I was diligent, I was even clinically, you know, proficient, uh, but there was nothing in it that really grabbed me, that sort of took me by the shoulders and said, yes, this is what you're meant to do with the rest of your life. In that time, I had met and married my husband and we had the opportunity to move down to the country, uh, have a tree change, so we did that. We moved 300 k southeast of Perth and uh, there was work for me at the local hospital. So I signed up and one of my roles was to be the evening coordinator for the hospital side, so carry the page and any emergencies that happened, I would go and, and help, you know, and I'd, I'd attend. And I remember the maternity unit of the hospital was this place where you didn't go unless you were invited because it was staffed by these midwives that were like these formidable creatures that uh, were just so awesome and powerful uh, and a little bit scary. And I remember, you know, I'd love it when my page would go off and it would be the maternity unit and I'd need to come and, and give a hand. And many times I remember going down to help out to put a drip up or to hold something and the midwives would be standing there going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, you know, with the doctors, engaging in really passionate discourse, advocating for women. It might be a woman was being recommended to be induced and she didn't want to. And so then the midwife was, you know, having this uh, professional discourse with the, with the obstetricians and adv really advocating with, with really good strength for the woman. And I remember feeling a little bit intoxicated by that, just thinking, oh, that, that is okay. I could do that, I reckon. Uh, but still a little bit scared and certainly would never go to the maternity unit without being asked. So the opportunity came for nurses who wanted to become midwives and it was offered and I put my hand up and I applied and I was deemed as a suitable candidate. Uh, but shortly after that, it was announced that unfortunately, whilst it's a great idea, we don't have any money. We can't do this. And I went... <clears throat> I don't think so. So I did what I now realise I perhaps shouldn't have done, wasn't quite the right way to go about it, but I wrote to all the politicians in the area. I went to the local MP and to the state MPs and said, now listen here, you've got a state workforce shortage uh, and I'm ready to do it, but there's just no money. And uh, I got summoned to my manager's office and she said, now listen, Zoe, you can't go writing letters to politicians, um, but by the way, we found some money and you can do the course. <laughs> Uh, so uh, off I did, I did, 12 months, up and down the highway, between hospitals, you know, acute settings, and, and I became a midwife. And I couldn't have possibly known it then, uh, what I know now, that I was embarking on this transformative, life-altering trajectory that has quite literally changed my life, and I know the lives of many others as well. And uh, so I have entered this profession where I get to uh, midwife actually means with woman. That's the literal translation of the ancient English, mid, with, 
wife, woman. And so I, I've um, joined this profession, been a midwife for nearly 20 years now, where I get to work alongside women, to grow strong women, uh, to ensure that families uh, in, encounter this, this most fundamental of human experiences, this business of making more humans, of giving birth, uh, that that's a positive experience for them and that it has the action of creating good, strong families because they create good, strong communities and good, strong societies and a good, strong world. So I feel really privileged to have been, uh, in one way or another, you know, given the opportunity to, to enter this profession. And look, we get invited into some really sacred spaces really, really quickly. Um, and so many examples I could think of, but one that springs to mind is uh, a couple who had migrated, had chosen to migrate from their country to Australia. Both were very seasoned professionals in their own right in their own country. Um, but had chosen to make the move to Australia for their little little one who was five years old and uh, found themselves pregnant and, and giving birth. And as is often the case for migrants, their qualifications weren't recognised here. And so both of them were uh, undertaking work that didn't use their full capacity, but that was a sacrifice that they were wanting to make in order to um, make a better life for themselves. And I remember mum had gone to the bathroom and dad was there and baby was on the bed and uh, baby was crying and dad was just watching baby cry. And so I proceeded to show him how to swaddle baby and how that calmed the baby down. And then I passed his new son to him and he looked at me like I'd slapped him. And uh, we proceeded over the next two to three hours to form this really rapid uh, rapport where I could understand that for him and his culture, uh, the, the last thing that he would be doing is taking care of the child. Uh, and also to understand that for the woman in her culture, she would be entitled to a 30-day lying-in period where she literally had to do nothing else other than breathe. And here these two people found themselves with no people, no support, no cultural entitlements, no, you know, no extended uh, support for them. And so I was able to work with them to show them that that courage that they had used to migrate uh, and to try and, and find a better life for themselves, if they were able to use that courage to uh, step outside of the cultural expectations that both of them were entitled to, the grief and loss that comes with not getting what you grow up with as, a, as an expected rite of passage, but to use that to, to turn towards one another and to support one another, to be brave and to step outside of those cultural expectations and to form a new way for them in this new country uh, that they would find reward. And, you know, we were all crying by the end of that session. Um, but that's just one example. That's like hashtag four hours of a midwife's work. Uh, and we get to do that day upon day upon day. Uh, look, I'm really fortunate now. I've um, you know, continued on in my career and I, I'm now a research academic at uh, Curtin University, so I teach midwives and I make good clinicians uh, that are woman-centred practitioners. Uh, and I'm also conducting research at, at uh, King Edward Memorial Hospital. Um, and I'm able to give back from some of the transformative work that's been done in my life through the profession of midwifery. Uh, I have the role of the Vice President of the Australian College of Midwives and I'm able to give back and to see uh, a strengthened midwifery profession who seeks to uh, come alongside uh, midwives, support midwives to work with women. So I feel really lucky and, you know, like when I reflect on, no one, no one really welcomes adversity in our life. No one welcomes the struggle and uh, the opposition that we experience. I remember, you know, how many strategy meetings that I've gone to about how to be this successful X, Y, Z and it's all, you've got to have a five-year plan. I have never been a five-year plan person. 
I, uh, my motto is I work hard and I say yes to opportunities. And, you know, there's some part of me that when I sit in those workshops and go, oh, I don't know how to make a five-year plan, I don't actually really know what I want. I think that the process of putting this story together has helped me to understand that, you know, I might not have a five-year plan, but where I've experienced adversity, uh, where I've experienced opposition or perhaps criticism, and where I've been able to understand that that's preventing me from something I clearly do want but perhaps wasn't recognising, that that has led to, uh, um, you know, periods that have brought the most profound meaning uh, and enjoyment for me and for my life. So that's what I wanted to share. Oh, thank you so much, guys. Can we give them another big round of applause? Um, those are beautiful stories. I'm so glad that um, the three of you got to share them with us today. Um, so that is this, uh, the end of our second event. So for those of you coming along to the third event, um, we're at Studio 281 just around the corner. We've got a little bit of time though, so um, feel free to stick around, have a little look, um, maybe grab a couple of gifts. When it's time, Logan, who is down the back, will take you over to the next venue. Um, but thanks again to King Street Collective for having us and we'll see you guys soon. Yeah.